one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to this very special episode of Talking Space. My name is Zoya Rosenstein and joining me today is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. I am seriously looking forward to today, Sawyer. This is going to be a lot of fun. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. And what's here will soon be there. Exactly. By the way, Gene, <laughs> do you know who we're talking to today? Oh, but of course, Sawyer. And you uh, get the little hint there in what I said, you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> what we're talking about. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. Why don't you introduce our guest for us, then? Sure, Sawyer. Our guest today is Dr. David J. McComas. Uh, Dr. McComas is the Assistant Vice President of the Space Science and Engineering Division at the Southwest Research Institute. Previously, he served as the Director of the Center of Space Science and Exploration at Los Alamos National Laboratory. He has 30 years' experience in developing flight hardware, with nearly 25 of those in instrument and mission leadership positions, as well as numerous line and program management positions at Los Alamos and at the Southwest Research Institute. His broad-based technical leadership includes serving as the principal investigator on NASA's IBEX and TWINS missions, as well as being principal investigator for six other instruments on NASA and Department of Energy space missions. Dr. McComas is a fellow of the American Physical Society, the American Geophysical Union, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He holds six patents and has authored over 400 referred publications covering a wide range of research across space physics, including heliospheric, solar wind, coronal, magnetospheric, cometary and planetary topics, as well as numerous spaceflight instrument missions and techniques. And he is also the principal investigator on the Jade instrument flying on Juno, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And Mark, why don't you take it away from here? Dr. Dave McComas, welcome to Talking Space. Uh, would you tell us a few words about Juno and, and your role in the program, just for starters? Sure, Mark, and thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. So GENO is a fantastic new science mission that uh, NASA will be launching uh, hopefully on August 5th, uh, although the uh, launch window is uh, several weeks long. And uh, GENO is a mission that flies to Jupiter and goes into polar orbit around the planet Jupiter um, and lasts for about a year in that polar orbit. Um, Jupiter, of course, is the largest planet in the solar system, and outside of the sun, almost all of the rest of the material in the solar system is locked up in this one planet, Jupiter. And so understanding, studying and ultimately understanding 
what what's going on inside Jupiter and how Jupiter formed the material that's in it, how much water, for example, is, is in the planet, whether it has a solid core or not a solid core. And these sorts of things will help us to understand how the entire formation of our solar system occurred and therefore basically learn about our own, uh, our own history, the history of, of our Earth and the other planets. So my role in the mission is I'm, the, uh, I'm a science co-investigator, but I'm also the lead investigator for one of the instruments. Uh, the instrument that I've provided is called the uh, JADE, Jovian Auroral Distributions Experiment. And basically that instrument measures particles which are precipitating down into the atmosphere of Jupiter and make uh, beautiful auroral displays. Uh, people don't know it much because Jupiter's so far away and you can't see it um, without the Hubble Space Telescope or some other immense telescope. But uh, Jupiter actually has a, a, a huge interaction um, with the solar wind, the million mile an hour uh, uh, wind of ionized gas or plasma coming out from the sun, just like our Earth does, but on a much larger scale. Jupiter's sort of a we call it a magnetosphere, the region of influence of the magnetic field of a planet. Um, it's sort of a, a magnetosphere on steroids compared to the Earth or, or any other uh, planet in our solar system. And there are these immense and very powerful auroral displays of Jupiter. So my instrument, uh, the Jade instrument, is one of several that will be looking at these auroral distributions and trying to understand exactly what that interaction, how that interaction is working and, and what the precipitating particles are. When you mention part of the jade is going to be seeing are they strictly solar wind or is there high speed particles from outside the solar system or what what do you expect to see yeah that's a great question uh, at the earth um the magnetosphere is mostly filled with material from the solar wind which is about 96 percent hydrogen four percent helium um on average and there's a small amount of oxygen that comes up out of the earth's atmosphere but in the case of Jupiter, there's this uh, volcanic moon, Io, which is constantly spewing out oxygen and sulfur uh, into, uh, into the, the, the uh, region around Jupiter. And a significant fraction of that material actually becomes charged, becomes ionized, and picked up into the rest of the plasma. And so a lot of what we expect to see, although nobody knows because it hasn't been measured yet, but a lot of what we expect to see may be related to these much heavier ions um, which are trapped in, in Jupiter's magnetosphere. And so by flying in the polar orbit uh, or over the auroral zones over and over again, um, we'll be measuring the actual uh, distributions of the electrons and also of the ions, including these heavy ions of sulfur and oxygen, um, measuring their distributions. And simultaneously, another one of the instruments on Juno, uh, which is a uh, ultraviolet camera, will be looking down on the aurora themselves. So we'll be measuring the particle distributions and looking down at the display that they make below us and really be able to put together um, that interaction. I'm curious, some of the results that you hope to see with these instruments, uh, are, they, are they things that translate well to uh, average folks out there that you would be interested in a little bit of science, but, uh, but you know, perhaps the time isn't available to really bone up on the basics? Uh, pictures, uh, you know, short descriptions of things? How, how do you think it'll translate out? Well, sure. I, you know, I think a lot of the science, uh, because it's so fundamental, will be interesting to a general public. I mean, certainly the, the question of how our solar system formed, um, how much water was available, 
in the in the solar nebula and disk uh, out of which the planets formed, most of which now is locked up in inside Jupiter. Um, I think those are really the sort of fundamental and far-reaching questions that a lot of people um, are are interested in. Um, what makes the magnetic field of Jupiter very very strong magnetic field that produces this large magnetosphere? I think people are interested in things like the aurora. I mean, certainly on Earth, there's there's a lot of interest, and in, and it's related to space weather here on Earth, which uh, which affects uh, technological uh, things that we have, cell phones, GPS, and stuff like that. And so, um, in fact, by studying those same sort of phenomena in a different environment at Jupiter, we learn more about the fundamental processes that can have an important impact for understanding how things work back here on Earth in our own magnetosphere. So I think there are a lot of different parts and pieces that, that people could be generally very interested in. Um, in terms of pictures, there are the, uh, the UV images that I've already mentioned, and then there's another um, uh, instrument, uh, another camera, which is sort of an education and public outreach uh, camera, um, which is flying on, um, flying on, uh, on Juno, which will take uh, pictures as we fly over the cloud tops, basically. And then finally, um, there's another, uh, another sort of a camera, an infrared auroral mapper camera, um, which looks at the, uh, the clouds in, uh, in the infrared in, in longer wavelength uh, light, basically. So yeah, I think, I, I think it'll be a good complement of results, uh, both technically and in terms of uh, you know, easily absorbable uh, visual uh, information. I got to say, looking at the list of some of these instruments, I love the names, uh, such as Waves, Jedi, Jade, Gyram, I don't know if that's pronounced or spelled, J-I-R-A-M, and then JunoCam. Uh, yeah. There must be a little creativity that goes into uh, into some of the naming. I'm curious, uh, the instrument that uh, that is looking at the, uh, the, the magnetosphere, the magnetometer, mm-hmm. uh, is that and other instruments, are they significantly different than what flew on Galileo that last I'm not sure if it was the last probe for Jupiter, but uh, I see that it probed Jupiter in the mid-90s. Right. So, um, first of all, there are a number of instruments that are really looking hard at the magnetosphere. The magnetometer surely uh, measures the magnetic field. Jade measures the the lower energy charged particles. JEDI measures the higher energy charged particles, UVS. Uh, looks down on the UV aurora. So, I mean, there are multiple, and, uh, and, and so there are uh, multiple instruments and measurements that we basically put together the data from to, to come to the understanding. Um, but the real, thing, the real thing that's special about studying the magnetosphere from Juno compared to uh, Galileo is that basically Galileo was an equatorial or near-equatorial orbiter. And that's a great place to be to study the, um, the, the moons around Jupiter, um, because they basically all lie close to the equator. But it's very hard to study the auroral regions, just like on Earth. It's very hard to study the auroral regions if you're confined down near the equator where the aurora doesn't exist. And so the big difference between what we can do from a space physics perspective uh, on Juno compared to Galileo has to do with the orbit itself, where we stay in a polar orbit and we come into very, very low altitude, sort of just over the cloud tops um, on each orbit, and we do that at different phases of the uh, of the rotation of the planet, and so we're able to make sort of a detailed mapping of the inside of the planet and that sort of thing. But in addition to that, it allows us to directly be on the magnetic field lines that the aurora and auroral phenomena occur on 
that's very important because those are the magnetic field lines that actually map much further out into the magnetosphere where there's a lot more uncertainty about how things work. And so it's really the geometry and the orbit uh, difference between Juno and uh, Galileo that will make for the big breakthroughs in, in, in magnetospheric understanding. I was wondering, with the, since you'll be studying the aurora specifically with, uh, with your scientific instrument, I was wondering, through the study of the aurora and what you're looking at with Jupiter, what kind of space weather implications could we see back on Earth from studying these? Yeah, that's, that's another great question. I mean, you're, you're sort of asking about uh, something that we like to call uh, comparative magnetospheres. Um, when you only have one example of something to study in detail, um, it's, it's, it's common to say, oh, this is how this has to work. You know, it works here this way, we think, because, you know, we look at some data, and therefore, you know, we think we have a, some deep understanding of, of, of what the interaction is like, what the magnetosphere is like, and what the processes are like. Um, but it's not really till you get to study a different application of it, somewhere else where, for example, at Jupiter, there are a lot of heavy ions, there's a fast rotation rate to the planet, there's a much stronger magnetic field, you're five times further away from the sun, so the solar wind input, the pressure from the solar wind and that sort of thing are you know, down by a factor of 25. Um, so it's once you get to study something in detail in a different environment that you can really draw the comparisons and find out which of the things that you thought you understood from your one example are really generic and generally true and which of the things maybe were just some you know odd happenstance of how how things uh how things balanced out there and so we're we're very excited uh about being able to do the first really detailed uh reconnaissance of the uh the jovian magnetosphere from high latitudes and over the poles um because i think that will really let us uh understand fundamentally the differences between the 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 aurora phenomena uh, at Earth and at Jupiter, and, and we already know there are some differences. For example, you can see the moons, um, they may have a footprint down in the aurora, and as the moon, some of the moons move around, you can see in the pictures um, uh, the, the, the foot point of the magnetic field lines that are linking between those moons and down into the, 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 the polar uh, atmosphere. Um, and so there, you know, that doesn't occur at Earth. So we already know that there are some of those sorts of differences, but there may be even more significant differences that we uh, that we don't know of yet. So by doing that kind of planetary magnetospheres and by doing comparisons between magnetospheres of different planets, coming to the deeper understanding of how the phenomena work, that helps us be better at, at, at predictive aspects of understanding uh, magnetospheric physics and space weather here here in, here at the Earth's magnetosphere. Okay, so one of the other purposes of Juno is to actually look deep into Jupiter and take a look through the clouds and possibly at its core as well. So uh, what are we hoping to find as we look through the clouds? Are we hoping maybe to find possibly a solid core or liquid core, or what are we looking to find? Yeah, so one of the most exciting things about Juno is that we have different ways of looking deep inside of uh, the planet Jupiter and and seeing, you know, what, what's inside and how it's configured. Um, for starters, we've got something called radiometers, which are basically um, ways to make a remote measurement of the temperature at various depths down inside of the planet. And by looking down inside the planet with these radiometers, we'll be able to tell, for example, the oxygen content as a function of, of height inside the, uh, uh, inside the planet. 
deeper down than that, uh, the magnetic fields, which are produced uh, inside of Jupiter by the motion of the charged particles. Um, by measuring the magnetic fields as we fly close in, we'll be able to, to, to understand what, the, what those motions are like inside the planet that are producing the, the dynamo, the magnetic dynamo, and therefore the magnetic field. And in addition, by very carefully watching the motion of the spacecraft as it flies very close in in this polar orbit at different longitudes uh, around the planet on, on different orbits, basically, each orbit um, measures a set of longitudes, a unique set of longitudes. By making those measurements and looking for tiny changes in the motion of the spacecraft, we're able to look at the distribution of mass inside the planet and understand from the gravity, basically, which affects the, the exact location of, of the Juno spacecraft, um, to be able to understand the, uh, the distribution of deep, deep mass in there. That'll tell us whether there's a, a core or not, and if there is a core, what size uh, of core and what sort of distribution of mass in the core. Um, there are a lot of theories about the inside of Jupiter. It's very important, as I've mentioned, because so much of the rest of the mass of the solar system is tied up in, inside Jupiter. Um, so there are a lot of theories and different ideas about it, but uh, we've never had the data to be able to tell um, what it's really like in there. Once we have the results from these three types of measurements from Juno, we'll really be able to understand the internal distribution uh, of the planet and, and uh, basically see right, right through it. Gene, I believe you have a question next. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Dr. McComas, first off, thank you very, very much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today. Um, I had a question about uh, the solar panels on Juno. Uh, Juno leverages some uh, Juno, Juno for power leverages uh, solar panels instead of using a, uh, a radioisotope thermoelectric generator or RTG. Uh, what was the decision process to go with uh, solar panels instead of an RTG? Uh, what limitations, if any, did this place upon you when you were designing the Jade experiment or designing Juno in general? Um, and uh, what operational limitations might there be um, with reference to the having the solar panels as opposed to an RTG? Thanks. Yeah, uh, great, great question, uh, Gene. So um, back when we proposed the Juno mission, uh, in the announcement of opportunity that NASA put out, there was an option to propose missions that required an RTG. Um, but at the time, it, it wasn't obvious that there would be an RTG available in time for the, for the launch dates that, that we were planning for and, and proposing to. Um, and while this mission surely could be done with uh, RTGs, as, as other missions before have gone to Jupiter and, and further using, using RTGs, um, we went and, and looked carefully as to see whether at, at, at Jupiter, which is 5 AU, five times as far away from the sun as the Earth is, we call it an astronomical unit or AU, um, at five times further away, where the sun is about 25 times dimmer because it goes as the square of the distance, um, whether it was possible to build large enough solar arrays that we wouldn't have to have an RTG and therefore could propose a mission that even if the RTGs weren't available in time, um, we'd be able to hold schedule and go ahead. Uh, it turned out that you can do that. They're very large solar arrays, about 60 square meters, about 600 square feet um, of, uh, of uh, solar arrays on three very large fold-out panels. Uh, the Juno spacecraft is a six-sided spacecraft, basically, so three of the six sides, every other side, has one of these immense fold-out uh, solar array panels on it. Um, and it turns out that if you have 
this uh, 60 square meters of uh, ultra-modern, super-high-efficiency solar panel, uh, you can generate about 500 watts, which is, you know, a few traditional light bulbs, basically. Uh, so it's not a lot of power, um, but, but uh, we, we who build space instrumentation and spacecraft are actually very good at building very low-power instruments and spacecraft subsystems. And so we're actually able to operate the spacecraft and take all, all the data that we need um, uh, and, uh, and uh, collect it and store it uh, in this 500 watts. And then in other parts of the orbit, um, when we have some of the instruments turned down, um, we're in a lower power mode, we're able to uh, use the, uh, the high-gain antenna and telemetry that data back. And so uh, it's a combination of very, very large solar arrays and very uh, thrifty instrumentation and spacecraft that, that make it possible to, to do that. Now, you're no stranger to designing uh, spacecraft for deep space missions. Um, what specific challenges are there in designing hardware to survive in an interplanetary space environment? That's probably one of the harshest environments we know of. What do you have to do to harden uh, electronics to go ahead and survive in that type of environment? Yeah, so actually the interplanetary space part is, is not so bad. Um, if you stay away from the planets, there's galactic cosmic radiation coming in. Um, that's certainly an important radiation environment that, that your instrumentation needs to uh, survive. But it's not nearly as bad as when you get into a, a planetary orbit and you go through the trapped radiation belts. Here at Earth, we call them the Van Allen belts because um, uh, Van Allen discovered these uh, flew a Geiger counter on one of the first uh, U.S. satellites and discovered uh, basically these highly charged trapped particles on the magnetic field lines in the Earth's magnetosphere. Um, well, really, uh, as I've mentioned, the, the Jovian magnetic system uh, in the solar system outside the sun, and so um, there are incredibly high fluxes of uh, very high energy trapped uh, particles which produce uh, extremely high levels of radiation. Um, so in the case of Juno, one of the main drivers that we've had to, to work around is this very, very tough radiation environment. Um, and in fact, we've done that a couple of different ways. One way is by being in this polar orbit, um, we actually fly very quickly through the, uh, through the, through the, the trapped radiation environment, and we spend most of our time either above it or below it, and in a polar orbit you can do that. You can actually drop down inside of, of the equivalent of the Van Allen belts and be underneath them. So uh, when we're close to the planet, when we're going through periapsis where we, where we pass very close in the planet, part of the oval of the orbit that's closest, um, we actually drop underneath uh, these radiation belts and, and, and again the radiation becomes low. But even with this tactic of avoiding as much of that as possible, uh, it's still a very high overall radiation environment particularly later in the one-year mission uh, as the orbit continues to evolve. And so uh, one of the things we've done for Juno is we've put most of the electronics on the entire spacecraft in a vault that's about a, a cubic meter, a meter by a meter by a meter, very thick walled with most of the electronics boxes inside. Now, the instruments that have to take the pictures or measure the particles, those uh, have to sit out on the edge of the spacecraft. But in fact, even for those, most of the brains controlling them and most of the high-voltage power supplies controlling them and that sort of thing are at the end of cables back inside this very thick-walled vault. And so we've put all of this electronics together and protected in the vault 
as a way to survive in, in, in the very tough uh, Jovian uh, uh, environment. Okay. Um, you were uh, the principal investigator for uh, the Interstellar Boundary Explorer, or IBEX, which was uh, launched back in October 2008. And uh, the uh, two wide-angle imaging neutron atom spectrometers, or TWINS mission, uh, launched in 2006 and 2008, respectively. How has that experience assisted you with the design of JADE, or you know, adding uh, even suggestions to how the Juno spacecraft as a whole um, was uh, designed from a lessons learned standpoint, and also if you have anything new to, new to share about either one of those two uh, 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 experiments, by all means, please do. Yeah, well, I've been involved in a lot of uh, space missions, um, both you know leading missions as you've mentioned, and also um, as lead investigator for an instrument on a mission. Um, as have many of the other uh, uh, instrument leads on Juno. And uh, we've all collectively tried to uh, try to share our understanding and best practices. Um, the spacecraft people obviously have also had a, an immense amount of, uh, of flight experience with these sorts of spacecraft. And so, uh, you know, I think I think the way this really works for us is it's, it's so rare to be able to actually fly a major mission to someplace like Jupiter or, um, you know, any of these NASA missions. That, that fundamentally you get people with experience together and you share best practices and talk about things that have worked better and worse and at least for all of the things I've developed, uh, each one, you know, we've used, we've used what we've learned before um, and uh, tried not to make the same mistakes twice. Um, we've been pretty good at doing that. It's impossible to avoid making mistakes, but you certainly don't want to have to make them uh, more than once. Um, and so a lot of the areas, for example, in Jade, where we've developed the instrumentation, are things we've done before and have worked well. Um, but in other areas where we don't have as much experience, and there were several of those for this mission because of the very strong magnetic field of Jupiter, um, which we hadn't flown a mission largely to be inside those strong magnetic fields because of this particular radiation environment, we also had to go out and study ways to mitigate those sorts of issues and fold those into kind of our existing understanding of how you do the, the instrument design. It's a real learning. I guess I would say it's a real learning process for all of us um, because each and every mission is new and unique and wonderful, and you know you work through the aspects of it that are different than what you've done before, and and try to bring your experience and 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 do even better each time. Thank you, sir. Um, Mark, I believe you had a question, please. Actually, a couple come to mind. Uh, when you were talking about the the magnetic fields and the radiation belts, I uh, this may be out in left field, and and you can certainly correct me because uh, I'm visualizing this really for the first time. But is there any comparison between uh, some lunatic on foot trying to cross a busy interstate versus somebody in a car trying to merge the way the spacecraft uh, comes in from? on this polar orbit and is relatively safe even with the the uh, the, the maelstrom of the uh, radiation belts that it's so close to? Perhaps, although uh, the sort of visual thing that comes to mind uh, for me is is crossing uh, underneath a waterfall. You know, on the outside, <laughs> on the outside, uh, you know, you may be wading and getting, uh, you know, getting getting wet from some of the spray and that sort of thing. 
um, and inside there's usually a cave or something, you know, hollowed out behind the waterfall where it's uh, relatively uh, less water falling. But to get, you know, to get from one side to the other, you have to cross through the actual sheet of water that's falling. And uh, I think of these particles on these trapped uh, magnetic field lines very much like that. When you're on the part that's trapped, it's like being under the waterfall. It's very intense. There are a lot of charged particles hitting the spacecraft. But if you're doing that quickly as you move from one side to the other, the total amount of, uh, of, of water that hits you or radiation that hits your spacecraft can be relatively small. And I also gathered that uh, I was curious about the, the hazard to the spacecraft or the radiation, but uh, apparently the sensors are relatively safe because they're not the, uh, the, the brains of, of what's happening with processing. Well, for both the spacecraft and the sensors, we've, we've tried to move this, much of the smarts, the electronics, uh, back into this vault and protect it all together, both spacecraft and instrument uh, electronics alike. Um, much of what you do on the spacecraft you can actually keep in, entirely inside the vault because you're making decisions and formatting data and storing data and that sort of thing, which can be done in boxes that can stay in the vault. But in, in the case of an instrument, you're trying to measure the environment out there. So surely you have to have some sort of detectors out, outside the vault sitting on the edge of the spacecraft looking out. In the case of Jade, we have four sensors, three electron sensors that look off, uh, off from the three sides where the solar array panels are not. And they therefore can make a complete measurement all the time all the way around the sort of equatorial plane of, of the spacecraft. And then we've got a single ion sensor that, uh, that looks off one side uh, 270 degrees uh, viewing over the spacecraft. Um, those things just have to be out uh, on the edge of the spacecraft because they have to be able to directly see individual particles, electrons and ions coming, uh, you know, coming in and, and, and striking their aperture. Um, the cameras obviously need to be able to see the planet, you know, in order to take pictures of them. And so it was really a process of deciding what minimal amount of electronics you had to leave with those actual detectors out on the edge of the spacecraft and how much of it you could bundle up and put inside a, a separated box at the end of some pretty long cables and put inside the vault. And talking about the data that you're going to receive, uh Data is going to be down from the spacecraft to a uh, Earth station. Uh, does that happen continuously? Is it stored on board and forwarded to to the to this Earth station, or, or how is that handled? Yeah, so um, we use the Deep Space Network, um, which are uh, very large dishes, a few very larger dishes right around the world. Um, that are able to uh, take the very weak signal that you get from the distance of Jupiter. I've already mentioned how we only have this sort of 500 wattish uh, power source from the solar panels, and so uh, you know to have a strong radio signal and send a lot of data back, you you can do one of two things. You can either have a very strong sender or a very uh, very uh, good listener. And so, um, in the case of Juno, because we don't have that much power, we couldn't have that strong, uh, uh, that strong uh, a sender, and so we use this deep space network. Um, that combination, though, allows for a good data rate. Uh, there are times when we are directly sending data down uh, as, as, as we're flying, and there are other times where we are taking data um, and uh, 
keeping it in memory and then dumping it when we get back to a pass uh, where we have a connection. And so there's some of both. Got another question. Uh, I'm curious about what brought you to the to the work that you're doing today. And also, uh, if you could comment about the, it seems like an incredible amount of teamwork that's part of this mission with all the instruments from many disciplines. Yeah, so what brought me to space science? Um, I, well, I, I, I've always been interested in physics and uh, always been interested in space. And uh, uh, when I started to, in high school to start to really think about what I wanted to do with my life, it was clear to me that, uh, you know, that I wanted to be a physicist and study uh, some sort of fundamental phenomena in the universe. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to go to MIT as an undergrad and worked at, uh, at the Center for Space Science there at MIT um, with a lot of great people, and uh, I moved from there to Los Alamos National Laboratory, where I uh, worked with another just tremendous group of people on uh, various space missions, and it just sort of just sort of grew that way. I mean, I, I don't really know what to say. Space is very cool, and so if you're lucky enough to be able to uh, have your career discovering new things, I, I like to call it discovering the secrets of the universe and get paid for it, um, you know, doing uh, measurements in space. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to imagine wanting to do anything else for me anyway. Um, so I'm sorry, I forgot the second half of the question. Uh, it was what you've been talking about, uh, the teamwork, people that you've met. Do any of them stand out as uh, just incredible people that you've benefited by your association? Yeah, so um, it's all about teamwork. I mean, really the number of people involved in one of these space missions is so large. And, you know, I, I think some people in the public may think that it's a, a small number of scientists or engineers, you know, a small number of people who go and figure all this out and make all this happen. Uh, but in reality, it's, it's teams of tens and hundreds and thousands of people for a project this big. Um, and, and as people with all sorts of different skill sets. I mean, it's not just the scientists and engineers. There's a tremendous amount of, uh, of business support. There's a tremendous amount of administrative support. There are technicians who, you know, do a lot of the assembly and a lot of the, that sort of detailed work. There are educators that we work with who, you know, try to help us uh, figure out how we explain what we're doing to the public. I mean, it's just an incredibly broad range of, 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 of really wonderful dedicated people that, that make a project like this a success. All right, then I'm going to go in with the last question here, which we pose to every guest and is always the hardest question, all right? <laughs> okay. If people want to learn more about you or the mission or Jade specifically, where can they go to learn about it? Okay, so it's easy to learn about Juno and about Jade. Um, there are a number of really good websites uh, you can go, you can start with Wikipedia and just look up Juno the spacecraft. Uh, that's a good place to start. We have a fantastic uh, education and public outreach uh, website um, that you can find just by Googling for, uh, for the Juno mission. And inside those, uh, those websites you'll find links to the Jade experiment and to the other experiments and to all the exciting uh, science that, that, that we hope to be doing with, with Juno very, very soon. And uh, hope everybody will be watching and, and uh, crossing their fingers with, with us on, uh, uh, on the 5th of August. We definitely will be. And for all the listeners, those will be in the show notes so you can go and check them out.
which, by the way, we really suggest you do because the websites are not only informative but really well made. Yeah, the one on the, the the one that uh, SWRI did is really really cool. Seriously. Yeah. So that one that was actually done by a company in New York City um, that specializes in this sort of stuff and and is very cool. But there's a lot. I mean, there's just a lot of great material out on several of these websites. Dr. McComas, thank you for joining us. It's been great to have you here with us on Talking Space. Uh, sometimes people think of spaceflight as being the, uh, the launches that have crew on them or the International Space Station. And we realized and not really dug into it too far that there's a lot going on with some of these Explorer and New Frontiers missions that are, that are in work right now. It's a great year to be watching science and I want to thank you for joining us on Talking Space. Thank you all very much for the opportunity to talk about Juno. It's a great mission, and it is, you're right, there are a lot of other great missions up there and, and going to. Um, it's, it's a very exciting time for space science. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. McComas, and thank you as well for joining us, Gene McCulka. I have to thank uh, Dr. McComas for joining us today. This was going to be an incredible mission, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what Juno has to uh, reveal about, uh, about Jupiter. This is going to be an incredible mission. I can't wait. And thank you for joining us and for bringing this amazing guest on, Mark Radman. And if there's any question in people's minds as to what we're going to talk about with the shuttle program, you know, being behind us, trust me, there is plenty to talk about. Lots of it, to me, is just super exciting. So stick with us. If you've got some ideas, if you've got some contacts where we can go to talk space, let us know. And they've got, and this has got nothing to do with the SLS or anything like that. So, <laughs> oh, we're not even going there yet. Goose <laughs> wise move, sir. We didn't even go to Washington this trip. No, we didn't. I'm impressed. Mm. No, but we did go to Jupiter, so not bad. Five AUs away. So once again, thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll stick with us. But in the meantime, have a great day, night, evening, wherever it may be, where you are.